Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and a psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. You're a magician, not a wizard. You've got to get your hands dirty if you're going to achieve the impossible. The great Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, is a hot dog a sandwich? <laughs> I saw this on Twitter and I wasn't quite sure. To me, it's obviously a sandwich. But my thought is that a sandwich requires two pieces of bread with something in between it. And a hot dog fits that requirement well, so not perfectly. two pieces of bread. Well, yeah, it requires, it requires bread covering something on both sides of the thing that's in the middle the only thing i can think of about why a hot dog might not be considered a sandwich is if because there is an entire portion of the hot dog that is uncovered by bread you know but you need that for the relish and the yeah the, but you mean you have that in a jewish deli what about a pig in a blank pig's in <laughs> well, wait, a blanket? being in a jewish deli doesn't it's not evidence that it's a sandwich <laughs> What are you talking about? Those are the, the so, like, best a pic- sandwiches. A pickle is a sandwich? <laughs> no, I mean, like, you know, they pile the corned beef and roast yeah, beef. Yeah, you could even like, have an open-faced sandwich, right? Like, we uh, still call that a sandwich, right? right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> well, so Judge, you know, your boy, John Hodgman, the guy who plays the PC, and he's a very funny comedian, <laughs> he does this thing where he, he kind of, cast judgment on questions that people answer for his podcast but also for the new york times magazine and he argued and a a listener alerted uh me to this on twitter when we said that we're going to be talking about what we've changed our mind about said so you agree that uh, a hot dog isn't a sandwich Uh, the question is have you changed your mind about this And, and john hodgman says it's not because you can't cut it in half. <laughs> Wait, how can you not cut a hot dog in half? Well, I that, I, I have I mean, that does question he, he want, too. He wants to do it the long way? Does he want to do it the long <laughs> All it would take is some precision. In fact, the hot dog bun itself lends itself so nicely to... Uh, to yeah, I, it's, a, I, it's a lot easier than a lot of sandwiches to cut in half, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe the squishiness of the bread... <laughs> See, this is what happens when you're a PC and not a Mac, right? So. <laughs> you should ask Siri. You should have just asked Siri, but he's too proud. He's too fucking proud to ask Siri. Right. 
<laughs> Even though he worked for Apple, like I, Apple was paying. <laughs> exactly. I I think that uh, it's really misguided, and it's one of the signs of the downfall of philosophy that people would ask questions like if it's really a sandwich, you know. No, you uh, love that kind of thing. <laughs> I know. That's your thing. Uh, sorry, I should have done your voice. I should have done your oh, voice. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, that's what you think philosophy should be. In fact, we just recorded a great episode. I'm looking forward to editing it for uh, with Valerie Tiberius, where we talked about. And Dave, as everyone who listens to this would expect, was just vehemently defending conceptual analysis. Well, you know, I was wanting you to uh, not not be such a wuss about your criticisms of conceptual analysis and actually take like actually i know you love valerie she's very and she's very lovable but like you know she doesn't she does a conceptual analysis that i that uh, that is okay yeah but it's conceptual analysis and it's good yeah i think you just think that like the the kind of conceptual analysis that you like is the right kind the kind that you don't like and that just boils down to like your you know just some weird emotivist uh view toward (laughs) philosophy that you have where you're just like (laughs) boo and yay I think that the threshold is just like shit Tamler's interested in. There's only like a handful of objective truths. One of them is that the kind of conceptual analysis that is that most philosophers do, you know, that really looks for necessary truths uh, about concepts. That's the kind that is destructive to our discipline. It's Uh, uh, ravaging the discipline like like a hun. Well, you know what? Actually, one of my the favorite uh, my the favorite things that Valerie said um, was that Kant was not a Kantian about happiness. <laughs> that just blew my conceptual mind a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> so, in fairness to John Hodgman, he said he, he was applying the wisdom of Solomon. Uh, <laughs> to the, to the I hot dog see. question. I yeah. see. <laughs> I remember when I was having sort of a working out the custody arrangement with my ex <laughs> ex wife. I, I, right. My only my only requirement was that I get the top half. <laughs> but, so not down the middle. <laughs> down the middle is weird. It's no. like a hot dog. <laughs> yeah. Can't really do that. All right. So today what we're doing is and, – and we're going to be playing something that we recorded a while ago, a segment or a couple of segments on what we've changed our mind about. I think I, I gave three and because you never change your mind because you're – It's because like, I, never, I never have such dogmatic positions to begin with, you know. If you, for instance, if, if you're fairly ambivalent or indifferent to chocolate versus vanilla ice cream – you can't change your mind very easily, right? You know, but so you're wishy-washy, like Charlie uh, Brown. I well, this is why I support Dr. Ben Carson for president because uh, <laughs> I I see those traits in myself, and I want a man of action. <laughs> it has nothing to do with the fact that you're both highly African committed. Oh, uh, <laughs> both African American. <laughs> well, you just in your mind, but him actually, and then also uh, Seventh Day Adventist, like you know. <laughs> Highly observant. You know that he gets a mention on the fourth season of The Wire, which I was just rewatching. Oh I, I, no! In that in that little room where they take the students, you know, the sort of problem students that Naaman is in. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they they great ask, season. That's a great season. 
so phenomenal. Having watched what were my two favorite, what are my two favorite seasons, three and four, I always used to say that I think if I had to choose, gun to my head, three was better. But now having watched them both again, I, I got to go with. Four. Yeah, the kids so, are the kids are so good. Those so are, good, and yeah. one of the kids. So they're asking the kids what they want to be, what they're going to be when they grow up, and one of them says, "I'm going to be a neurosurgeon." And like that guy, like that dude, I fr- I'm not going to quote it right because I don't remember, but it was like, uh, at, and then one of the teachers says to the other, oh, that's Ben Carson at Johns Hopkins. Yeah. 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 It's funny. That's, that's great. You know, I mean, I, it's true. I grew up, I, I grew up uh, as a Seventh-day Adventist, like, and it, it does make me a little bit sad now to see, to see him on the campaign trail. But, you know, he had written a book called Gifted Hands and, and he was just a source of pride for Seventh-day Adventists. He was like this guy who had, had made it out of a pretty rough situation and was talented and, and was religious and, and made, it, made it that big. Now, it's just, I was asking a, a good friend of mine from uh, California who happens to be black and Adventist as well. I said, I said it, uh, what, what is the bigger source of shame for you? That Ben Carson is black, or that he's Seventh Day Adventist. <laughs> he's like, that's a good question. <laughs> I mean, you know, he's leading in Iowa right now. It, a white man can't be president in this country. It's totally a complete war on white men. You know? It really is. It's like the, first trigger warnings. You know, <laughs> microaggressions. Microaggressions. Yeah. Not not being We're able a- to have slaves. <laughs> We're on our way out, I'm telling you. <laughs> Other thing I wanted to do was to give a shout-out. We want to give a couple shout-outs. One to Julia uh, Vekanova. She calls herself, herself our one Rus- Russian listener, and she may well be. I don't know if we have any others. So she sent us an email way back on April 23rd, and I guess she had listened to a lot of the episodes already, and including the first one where we were, I guess, joking about whether I could have sex with my dog, Charlie. You Not, could I, or you should? <laughs> I think it was probably, yeah, whether I can get it up for Charlie. And I definitely can't. Like, maybe Omar, my other dog, like, he's kind of muscly, ripply, kind of sexy. But Charlie's just a big, big, just brown, black thing of drool and, and just you're disgusting. Just, you're a fattest. I love him. You're a fattest when it comes to dogs. I, I, I love Charlie. I love him more than I love Omar. Right. But right. but Omar is definitely sexier. Anyway, she, she started talking about this question she did it in a lighthearted way but but she then says and i'll just quote the end of her email as far as we know we don't have enough information on whether their emotional lives are of the same complexity as human lives so in a sense we would be taking advantage of them if if we were having sex with them and then she says at the same time by saying that am i suggesting that for example people with down syndrome should only have sex with people with down syndrome which doesn't sound right either I was wondering what you guys think about it. Well, we answered her question, I guess, to some extent in an episode, but right. just totally forgot that she had sent us this email. We, re- we read them. I mean, I'm sure we, this is, I guess, proof that we do read them and it seeps into our subconscious. Right. But it, it's, like a, it's like we're her graduate students and then we just take credit for her ideas. 
You know, like when you meet you meet with a graduate student and you're like, you throw out an idea, and then like three months later, they're like, dude, I got this idea. <laughs> that's how we listen are. to your record. That, that's how and we act like I don't like it. <laughs> Six months later, you'll hear your lyrics on my shit. <laughs> yeah, or professors do that to graduate students all the time. All, all, the, all the time. time. All the time. Uh, not my. Not I just, my I just preferred to have. Uh, to point yeah. out the, the one in my direction. There's these great studies, you know, where they ask uh, um, spouses what percentage of the housework they do. Um, yeah. And it always adds up to like 130. Or <laughs> <laughs> All right. This is uh, veering towards bad stand-up. That's right. What's um, the deal? What's <laughs> the deal with those grad students? Uh, I wanted to send a quick shout out to, and, and this is because we, we rarely get asked specifically for a shout out. But uh, Ines Lopez wrote us um, with some some uh, nice things to say about the podcast. Um, I wanted to do two things. One, she uh, switched you and me around. She said that she really loves that Dave likes to say the C word. Which and is bullshit, by the way. That's why I'm, I'm the one that will say that's, cunt. That's why I'm bringing it up. That's yeah. Right. <laughs> um, you know, Tamler not getting credit for, being the credit for being an asshole. Um and uh, she also said that her uh, she she only listened to our seventy fifth. She called it the Yellow Rain podcast because um, her boyfriend <laughs> couldn't stop talking about it, and it That's was funny. It, it came out on his birthday. So shout out to Bill Hoffman. Uh, thanks for spreading the word. Thanks for convincing somebody to listen to it. And finally, this I, doesn't mean that we'll definitely shout out everybody. That <laughs> no, us. no, but you know, there's very few people that actually ever ask us for a shout out. So finally, I, I uh, just wanted to say before we get into the wonderful discussion that I don't even remember about what we've changed our minds about. Thank you guys. Do you remember for all, the two things you changed your mind? About? Uh, I do remember the two things. I just don't remember most of the details of what I said. Uh, thanks for all the emails. Uh, please do continue to email us verybadwizards at gmail.com. Uh, you can tweet us at verybadwizards, at peas, at tamler. I don't brag enough, by the way, at having that Twitter handle. Four letters. I was an early adopter. That's nerd proof right there. No, you know what's even better is having your first name. <laughs> it's true, but how many net tamlers are there? Come on. Um, I only know three girls with that name. Um <laughs> Uh, if you like would to, like to meet them, if you, if you would like to uh, support us, you can do so in a variety of ways. You can go to our website, verybadwizards.com, which, by the way, we always have show notes with links and, and notes. Some people, I think, may not realize it if they just subscribe to the feed. Uh, go to verybadwizards.com, click on support. You can. You can go to Amazon by clicking on the link and anything you buy will give us just a little chunk of change. And that's actually been been very, very nice little reward for by our listeners for doing the podcast. Or you can just helping us pay for bandwidth, helping us pay exactly helping us pay for bandwidth or directly donate to us via PayPal, which we've also gotten with some wonderful donations. And we're actually working on a little uh, a little video that we we've considered We'll we'll release it to the public. Hopefully, I don't want to send, I don't want to make too many promises. But it's it's sort of as a thank you, especially to those those people who have, who have supported us in this way. Um, so PayPal, uh, Amazon, go to iTunes and give us a review, give us a star rating, even if you hate us. Um, but especially if you, especially if you love us, we've gotten some actually really 
really nice, nice iTunes reviews. I love the one about someone said something along the lines of my intuition tells me that I would if I could save the life of this podcast, or I wouldn't, I, I don't, it was, it was something wittier than that. <laughs> it, was, it, it was very well done. So, so thanks for all the support. And, uh, we, we hope that, that you're getting something, uh, in return. Um, that guy who left the repu- ones, the, the, uh, the sincere one star repugnant. I don't think he knew how much that would catch on and take off. It's, I know. It's it's wonderful. <laughs> Thank you to that person who's most certainly not listening to us by now. Like 30% of our reviews now just have the word repugnant. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We have at least, even though my semester is crazy busy, we've done a good job, I think, of of lining up a nice set of, of guests. So we're, we're going to have Eric Schwitzgebel, uh Valerie Tiberius, and those are already done. Yoel, um, to talk about Mr. Robot. I'm so excited. About. I am so excited for that. I cannot it. wait to talk about just season to, one. Just, We're all going to watch it again. Can you just be more, like a little more sober? Just to, just slightly more sober this time. Like give, give yourself like. I, okay. <laughs> so I pretty much predicted everything in that first time we no, talked you about didn't. Mr. Robot. You, you're for, getting some well, No, no, no. We're not, we can, no spoilers yet. We're giving listeners like a month to listen to <laughs> You, you, I'm, uh, my predictions were more accurate. You're, you predicted like this wide swath of like. I, I stand by those <laughs> predictions. In fact, totally. <laughs> you know, uh, one of, one of my students in Cutter, um, where I was just recently. Cutty from the cut. <laughs> from, uh, told me that I looked like the guy from Mr. Robot. And I was like, are you telling me I have bug eyes? Like, I, that's, is that a, that's not a compliment, right? I mean. She loves the show, so I wasn't insulted, but, but... You know, it's not... Yeah, I can see that. You don't have his bug eyes. Good. So that's a way that you don't look like him. Um, but, you, yeah, you sort of are like him. You know, like, it's like really you dress smart. like him. You, sure. you kind of, like, you think you're, like, this kind of cool, hip, like, <laughs> hacker New Yorker. Uh, you just don't get mad. You just get so cantankerous because you're so much older than me. <laughs> I'm just, like so not much older than you. I'm just like a couple years older than you. Even by like how old you say you are, which is like two years, two to three years. <laughs> yeah, younger. In Costa Rica, I swear to God, Jen doesn't like in Costa Rica. You are like only two years younger than me, and now all of a sudden that stretched to like three, four, five, four, four, maybe. I don't know. Well, uh, unfortunately, I was born in Argentina, so I don't have my long form birth certificate. To prove, I want. I'm a truther. I want to see it. Uh, all right. Yeah, so we, so we have those coming up um, that we're very excited about. We've been very bad about releasing episodes every two weeks, but we're about to get very good about it um, because we have two in the tank already with Eric and Valerie and Yoel and then Paul Bloom. And then Paul. Um, I'm not sure. Yeah, I know he he wanted to come on again because we lost his audio for episode 75. Thank you again last for uh, episode 75 and all that you said about it and all that you did for it. It was really, really fun. Yeah. Thanks to all you guys. It, it was wonderful. And, and uh, you know, actually, why don't we just put out a suggestion? Like, uh, I know Paul loves to talk about movies, um, but we're, we're considering topics. So if you have any topics that you really want to hear Paul Bloom talk about, why not give us a little... Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I put that on Facebook and Twitter, like requesting suggestions for a topic. And Great. Um, we've already gotten 
I've already got one to talk about Nightcrawler, actually. Oh, came yeah, up yeah. in our... Uh, in our Valerie. Yeah. Valerie Tiberius. Oh, and also trickling in, we have uh, uh, for voicemails of moral dilemmas and emails for moral dilemmas. We got a great one that we're going to talk about in an upcoming episode um, about like what to do if you suspect foul play with your dog. Uh, right. So, uh, yeah, keep sending those in, too, and we'll... We'll do our best. <laughs> we'll do our best at imparting yeah. our wisdom. All right. We'll be right back to talk about what we've changed our mind about over, I don't know, last five, six years. How considerate. You're waiting for me. Back to very bad wizards uh today tamler and i are going to talk about things that we've changed our mind about in our career yeah right? the positions like you've changed your mind i think a lot of people they go to grad you know they sort of expect you go to graduate school you defend a position and then you'll just always defend that position for the rest of your li- life even though uh, you go through so many more changes as a person as a i, I would think that 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 would be problematic if you never changed your mind about a substantive position. It's true. I've, you know, I, so first of all, props to you for this theme. I think it's a, it was your idea to do this. I think it's a really, a, a really good idea. And, and the effort which it took for me to come up with anything, um, I think indicates how, how rare it actually tends to, to be. We'll see with our other guests, but, um, it's always deeply worried me just just you know from an epistemological standpoint that what I believe to be true say about the human mind is solely or at least majorly due to who I just happened to go to grad school with like right. who I where I happened right had I gone to UC San Diego versus Yale University I would have had a, a very very different view of how the human mind is organized and you know it doesn't seem to shake anybody's intuition or anybody's faith in the truth of their position that they happen to acquire it by you know geography but it's sometimes seems just as 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 arbitrary as you know being being a laker fan or Or like Like, religious like your religion right you know that you know like you believe god has these features rather than that feature just because you happen to have been born in this place with those parents and you know it's an, an exactly. unbelievable coincidence that you happen to be right. Yeah, God blessed you with the uh, virtue of having been born in the right time and place to, yeah, to, to have right, to the right access to the truth, secret access. No, I agree though. That is something that is that 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 people should think about when they're in graduate school and and over the course of their careers. Now, I actually had the opposite problem. The effort for me was to limit the number of things. I have changed my mind about because I'm on the extreme end of the spectrum, I think, 
as somebody who changes their mind probably too often. I mean, people make fun of me for this. That you have no solid that I ha- yeah I have no solid views or but you know it doesn't it doesn't change how strongly I, I feel about the view when I have it and then I'll reject it equally strongly. In my view, like the big changes don't have as much to do with graduate school as much as getting older, having a kid versus not having a kid, having just new experiences. You know, it's just a new perspective. I think you we look at the the world through a prism and that prism is going to be adjusted whenever a a massive change in your own life experiences happens. And so it's not surprising that your views might change when your prism changes. Right. It's, it is still a little disconcerting that, that, that would be a route to but but you know I'm a rationalist, so we can talk about why. Right. No, I'm <laughs> I'm assuming your I, I, number three is that you used to <laughs> like Kant and sort of get hard when you were reading the Metaphysics of Morals, but now you actually ejaculate into the into the Kant. No 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 no. It's it's different. I just turned forty, so I it's less it's <laughs> like it's harder. It's harder to get that way. <laughs> it's harder, so, right? I, I have to like find new new things that Kant has written that nobody's ever seen before in order to get the same same <laughs> right. level of arousal. You know? you I'm like looking up like that new publishing. Uh, that yeah, new I need to read like letters you, in the original German. You know, like <laughs> a new translation <laughs> doesn't. Just doesn't do it for, like just the groundwork translation doesn't do it for me anymore. It's like <laughs> so. Why don't you start off with one of your uh, early, mid, or late summers stages? Okay. Like, uh, All right. So number three, Eddie Namias emailed. Me. Oh, you ranked you ranked yours. Yeah, I actually think they are ranked in order of importance to me. So, okay. well, we're doing three, right? Or are you doing? We're two? doing. We're well. I have two. I might think of a third one some yeah. somewhere. We'll see. Yeah, we're also <laughs> limited in time right now, so we'll see. That's but right. I do want to do my first one anyway. My my number three. This is this was prompted actually because Eddie Namias e- emailed me. He's a philosopher at Georgia State, experimental philosopher, and he he emailed me threatening me for taking a cheap shot at XFi last yeah. last episode. I don't totally remember if I did take a cheap shot, but I probably did. I don't um, either, but I don't It was more it. in the context of all the legitimate shots at social psychology that and yeah. God, you know, uh, which I, I think I was very restrained there. But anyway, uh, <laughs> I, 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 more seriously, I... I used to be a huge fan and believer in experimental philosophy when it got started. Um, I, you know, I, I was friends with a lot of the people who were the real pioneers of experimental philosophy. Sean Nichols, Eddie Namias, Josh Nob, of course, Ron Mallon a little later on. And then I interviewed Steve Stitch for my first book. And, and I, I was very excited by it. And I really thought that it was going to break new ground and be very good for the field. And I... I, I still, I still, it's not that no good work has been done in experimental philosophy. This is my new view, what I've sh- shifted to, because I do think there has been a lot, even though I've been more critical lately. Um, and probably as a whole, I, I find it more valuable than other philosophical work in other fields. But that's not saying a huge amount. But anyway, I've started to think there are far more problems with 
experimental philosophy and its approach and its methodology. Uh, and this has nothing to do with the, st- the statistics, the way they gather it. This has nothing to do with the experimental designs. Um, right. I have more problems. The, the problems are more fundamental and deeper, sort of assuming they could work th- those things out. And I'm also less enamored with the virtues or the promise of experimental philosophy. And I guess the biggest issue I have with it is that it either practices or enables, you know, it's an enabler of the kind of philosophy that I hate, which is, as we've talked about so many times, conceptual analysis. Um, So even when it's doing its negative program where it's challenging existing theories of concepts like knowledge or free will, or it's still, it's still perpetuating that methodology it's like well your con- your conceptual analysis is wrong because it is tacitly making a claim that people's intuitions are like what you say they are and so let's correct your concept by right. doing a study and, yeah. or yeah just showing that in hong kong students don't have those intuitions about that right. concept or something like that right. and you know and they'll do this about gettier cases or about the standard free will cases and, you know, something like the knowledge debate, it doesn't put that debate to rest. It's, it, it, it keeps them alive, right? It, it doesn't put them out of their misery, which is what I think should happen to a debate right. like that. And, you know, I was, it, it was sort of interesting. I was, I was reading that a lot of people were a little critical, even though they were sympathetic with the critique of, that feminist ethics and the ethics of care had uh, of the Rawlsian and Colesbergian framework when it comes to moral justice. So it, even when it was criticizing them, it was still ex- implicitly accepting their framework, their methodology, and defining itself by their opposition to the Rawlsian approach mm. rather than truly shaking up the field and, and, and then practicing the kind of philosophy that they think should be practiced that's the trap that I wouldn't want XFi to fall into, just defining itself, but not escaping the methodology that I find so problematic. Um, is, is, it, is it tied specifically to the negative claims that are made? Do you think that if they pushed more the positive agenda that we're learning something like that could, could construct a new theory, given what we know about the mind, like would it? Except that too often in the positive program, for my taste, it's working within that conceptual analysis framework. Well, let's come up with a theory, a new theory of necessary and sufficient conditions for concept like free will. Or let's prove that the folk are implicitly incompatibilist, dualist, but I think it's just fundamentally misguided in trying to come up with a theory that captures the intuitions of some of the folk or a majority of the folk about a particular concept, you know, by appealing to these thought experiments and counterexamples and variations on thought experiments, you know, like some of the stuff that Josh Nob does, I actually, you know, showing that our certain concepts are infused with moral positions and beliefs and attitudes. I think that stuff is pretty cool. And, you know, that's a part of the positive program that I'm more in favor of continuing, except when he does that with like the knowledge debate and things that I hate. But um, but overall, yeah, I, I don't know what exactly 
I, I want it to do. Some of the stuff that Adam Feltz does that shows that personality type can be linked with our intuitions about responsibility, say, I think that stuff is pretty cool. I'm interested then in, in how when we bring on Eric Schwitzgibel, Schwitzgibel. Um, Schwitzgibel about uh, what, whether you'll resurface some of these critiques then. I will. The problem with that is a lot of what he does is geared towards attacking Kant. <laughs> wow. So, yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, I'm yeah, a sucker. conceptual analysis. I'm all for it. You know, <laughs> right. All of my critical faculties are lulled. <laughs> by uh, anybody who's doing that. So that's what XFi should do. It should just focus entirely on destroying the Kantian obsession that has plagued our field. So this is, this is obviously your, your category, but I do want to say that um, I, I think that you might be giving short shrift to the variety of work that might be called experimental philosophy that yep. doesn't necessarily adhere to that. And I think that there's good work that takes some of the psychological literature on the way the mind is structured and tries to assess whether or not what philosophy, like Edouard Mastery, for instance, when he talks about concepts and his analysis of, you know, what, what do we know about, about the psychology of how concepts are formed and does this match up with philosophical theories? But I think that is it increases in sophistication. My my only problem is it's unclear at what point it's philosophy and at what point it's just psychology. That doesn't seem like a problem to me, though. Who cares? Well, it's it's, it's well in the sense that it's is is the critique going to generalize to what philosophers are doing? Like it, it's to me, it's important in that if there's the negative agenda that our findings as experimental philosophers are saying something about a philosophical theory, then it's you know, that's one thing. But if it's just trying to understand the nature, like Josh Nob does, the, the nature of, of how people use uh, or understand intentionality and what it means under different conditions and why it means this, it's just psychology. And But so what? Like, you know, it's very hard to distinguish political theory from political philosophy. But yeah, but it's not but it's not hard to distinguish psychology from philosophy in that, like once you adopt the empirical methods of psychology and then stick to answering descriptive questions, um, then I just don't know why why it's called experimental philosophy at that point. It's social psychology. It's just I mean, I, I agree that the divisions are fuzzy and can be arbitrary, but it really is to me striking that that you could do work on how people at a descriptive level how they attribute blame to others you know there's plenty of social psychology on it i I suppose that it might have implications for normative theories of blame or not that's the part that always gets me like it's well so it's not that i want to draw the line so much it's just that i want to say like let's not call it psychology and philosophy it's just say like a purely descriptive a purely descriptive agenda well, I mean, like, I think that there's, we have an umbrella term for those, for that category, which is moral psychology. And, and we've, you and I have said many times that the stuff that we do and, and our interests are a lot more similar than our interests with other people who are still called psychologists and other people who are called philosophers, right? If that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, so, you're right that I, I do think that a lot of XFi is social psychology. I mean, there's no question. If you define social psychology as trying to 
come up with a descriptive theory about the practices and attitudes and intuitions of of a lot of of most people. In fact, and you know, certainly many of my problems with XFi are also problems with social psychology, except that you guys at least are not as tied down to some of the debates that philosophers have. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I view that sometimes as as a weakness of of psychologists who don't who don't use enough refinement in their concepts. In fact, just last night I was at a dinner where I got a huge argument. It was a friendly one, but about basically how the brain creates concepts. And I was asking her, you know, why she uses the term concepts versus just using categorization. And uh, and so we got in this just terminological morass where I was like, no, it matters. Like it, the terms matter here, like the concept of concepts uh, <laughs> versus the concept of category versus, you know. Oh, my God. That sounds like something I would have stormed out of. <laughs> okay we should move on <laughs> I, I one day we should talk about your objection to her because my first reaction to it is she's a hundred percent right and yeah except for that you're reacting to to not knowing anything about what she was saying <laughs> you're, you're when has that stopped me before <laughs> um i i just think that there are meaningful ways to to carve concepts that for instance, if you are if if there is slippage in that sometimes you use the word category to mean the exact same thing that you mean when you use the word concept, then it creates a confusion because there are real distinctions that that can be made that are meaningful. Like what, you know, if by if generally what we mean by concepts is a sort of a richer set of associations and knowledge and by categories we mean something more superficial or whatever it is that you choose, I think that there needs to be clarity. The difference between the psychologist's agenda and the philosopher's agenda is I don't, I don't necessarily care, for instance, if these are real metaphysical distinctions to be made. What I care about is not having sloppiness in terminology that would cause confusion. When you say you're studying one thing and it turns out you're just studying something that I completely... But I think a lot of times it's all just family resemblances, language games. And, well, it might... It... And then, like, you know, like, it's in a sense it's a category, in a sense it's a concept, in a sense it's knowledge, in a sense it's not... Sure, but the sense is if there's equivocation in the way that you're using the terms, just create confusion, and that's scientific confusion because it takes... Now it, now it has created a barrier to understanding because, like... Take the term empathy. The term empathy has been used to mean like 18 different things. Right. So what do I say? If I'm studying empathy, I say I'm studying empathy. Somebody might might just assume that what I'm studying is, is this sort of ability to take the, a third person perspective. And some people might mean like just that's a theory feeling. of mine. Uh, well, some people, that's what I'm saying. So you've just drawn a distinction that I think this these kinds of conversations are useful. Like, well, Shit. okay, when is it empathy? <laughs> You made uh, me draw a distinction. Draw, I know, and and a distinction that might have actual practical implications. No, I the, do, but that's for, an for easy the progress one, right? of science. Here, I'll just set put this one to rest, so you don't have to deal with this anymore. Empathy is theory of mind plus that you actually feel to some degree what the other 
you know, what the other person is feeling. If they're really happy, you also feel a little positive emotion. If they're suffering, you feel a bit neg- of negative emotion. Without uh, that, <laughs> you can you can you just have theory of mind without the feeling. I'm so glad to catch you defining with necessary and sufficient conditions um and and just positing this to be true well i mean look that's how i define when i talk about empathy that's how what i'm talking right this is exactly my point so now if you looked up a paper on empathy that had a completely different definition but said it was a paper on empathy you'd be like this isn't empathy and then i'll i could just pull the tamler card out and be like oh your use of distinctions is bullshit because you know no i would i would try to get a sense of what he defined as empathy or she right I'll give you an example that's maybe close to home. If you if you measure, say, as people in social psychology have, they measure, um, they use reaction time measures like the implicit association test to see how easily it is, how easily you categorize uh, good things with black faces and good things with white faces. Yeah, and that I took that, that association. Test. Right, and I'm sure you were. And I got colorblind. That was my. <laughs> Maybe because you actually are. Um, you you should have you should have used a color screen. If you score high on that, some people say, "Oh, that's ra- that's implicit racism," and some people say, "You know, racism means something more than just simply having an association." So, it, by dint of being raised in this society and having constantly being bombarded with images of like violent black males. I might have this association, but what I mean by racism shouldn't be used in this context because racism might might be a motivational thing. It might be a belief that you actually endorse. It might actually lead to behavior. And all of those are, are, you know, when you use the word racism, people will assume a whole lot about what you're saying. And so just to call someone racist on the basis of a reaction time measure that captures associations might be a way in which, you know, again, there's no metaphysically, you know, ontological category of racism or whatever, but, but it's meaningful to, to use different terms to clarify what the finding is. Right. But I, but I think then that's an argument for defining your terms when you use terms that might possibly be used in different ways. I am totally on board with that. But what I think philosophers and, and psychologists try to do is rather than just defining their terms, try to figure out what the folk concept is of that term or, you know, uh, how you can manipulate people's use of the term. And that's where I think you get diminishing returns in terms of the value of that right. kind of work. And that is much more common in, in yeah. X-Fi. Than, uh, okay, we have like literally like 10 minutes. All right. So let's go to your number three or at least one of yours, right? Uh, one of mine. Um, so this this might be the biggest one, but it's the most nebulous one, and and it sounds a little sounds a little hoity-toity. I used to be a much firmer believer in in the ability of people to use reason in some sense to arrive at their beliefs, and so you if you look at my one of my first articles with Paul Bloom was an attack of John Height's uh, model of of moral judgment. A lot of the claim was like there's a gross underestimation of the power that reasoning, at least sort of writ large, some desire to be consistent and and use evidence to alter your beliefs. I was a much firmer believer, not necessarily in how often people do that, but in how how 
easy it might be to get people to do that. So either ability or motivation. So what I don't want to sound like I'm saying is that, that, that I used to think people were smarter and now I know they're all stupid. But I, re- I literally mean in like the like, so here's a concrete way um, in which I can frame this. So social psychology has a family of theories that we might call consistency theories. So cognitive dissonance, which everybody learned about in, in intro psych. Right. Um, you know, the claim there is that if you have two thoughts, two beliefs, say, or a belief and an action that are in direct conflict with each other, that this causes some uncomfortable state and we are motivated through this uncomfortable state to change one of those things. So if you believe that smoking is, is bad, but you're a smoker, um, you might engage in something like selective avoidance. You might stop smoking because right. you can't live with this contradiction. I think over the years, both just from studying people and, and, and reading other people's work, I've just sort of lost heart <laughs> about this. I actually think that people are amazingly capable of holding completely conflicting thoughts, right. of applying rules uh, like the rules of just logic, like real basic rules in one domain and completely ignoring them in another domain, of, yep. of using all sorts of unconscious strategies to uh, never feel that sense of discomfort. I've seen it in myself. You know, it's almost as if um, when when I'm around certain people, uh, I can can almost actually seem to believe one thing when I'm around other people. I believe another thing and it's not making me uncomfortable and forcing me to be consistent. In, I clearly in don't my... have that effect on you. <laughs> You're just forced me to be mad. Um, <laughs> so I say that and I know that social psychology has sort of like for the past 20 years been in the business of saying people are stupid. Um, but I don't. I don't wholly endorse that. I think that there's a lot of ways in which we just tend to publish studies in which people are, you know, seemingly ignorant or dumb or, or irrational, driven by unconscious processes or irrational. I mean, I, 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 there are plenty of instances in which I think you can get people, you can point out their inconsistency within an experiment. Like when I did the Chip and Tyrone trolley example, like people get one scenario sacrificing a guy named chip ellsworth and they get the third they answer different than people who got the third they answer different um than the people who got tyrone payton depending on their political orientation or whatever but what we found is when you give people both scenarios whatever they answered first they want to stick to their they, they want to stick to it as their second answer um, so it's not, I, I think people are very capable of being consistent, even using the rules of logic. It's just that they're extraordinarily capable also of ignoring those rules when it's convenient. Um, but that's an interesting you know. case also just normatively about the desirability. So yes, it you is. know it's what I totally mean? Like, you don't, yeah, it's, it's embarrassing, fully but, but that's arbitrary it, right? that they want to go with their first one rather than like they could have been in the group that got that second. And they were. They do. And when we switch it, right. yeah. They'll when we switch it, one. you see. So all they want is consistency. They, they, right. They're embarrassed by it. But right. there is something that's that I think is deeper. Like the, the why they're embarrassed by it is actually meaningful to me. Like I think that they realize like, well, I can't just be like this. Just this sounds. See, really to me, actually, there the inconsistency is preferable to the 
consistency. You know, like what, what I would want people to do is say, oh, yeah, I guess I'm torn. I guess I'm torn and I'm on the fence about right. that question. And a little thing could make me change my mind either way. Um, and so I'm now going to be agnostic. There is some way in which the methods that we use don't they just don't allow us to capture like that process, right? It's just like, right. we didn't say like, were you conflicted? You know, in some ways that would be, that would be a, a better and more interesting way of doing it to see like, okay, what happened when you got that second one? Did you realize, oh shit, maybe I should use this rule or, but I'm just constantly struck that how, how easily we just carve the world into domains that we will use we'll use just really sharp intelligence in one in one domain and then we'll just ignore it just throw it to the wind in another domain and so it's it's less a fetish for consistency but rather like people know the kinds of rules that that um, are good to adhere to and when you ask them in that one situation they'll say well why should you believe this because like you know and they'll give you the evidence and they'll tell you that like it should follow that your mind has changed and then you take them over to another domain and when somebody else is trying to convince them they just completely are like no no that's just i I agree people have an incredible stomach for holding inconsistent beliefs that you know the same reasoning process will convince them they're right in one case but in the other case not convince convince them that they're wrong at all in fact it'll just make them mad and yeah. <laughs> and that i mean this was what my very humble tedx talk was uh, right it's about was, moral was change in moral opinion right yeah. um and and the moral domain is particular is one in particular where i think that it's I'm less bothered by that than you are, though. I, I, I think sometimes the drive for consistency can lead to a kind of dogmatism because I think our natural state is that we're very torn about a lot of different things. To try but to force I, you it know, into a consistent whole is often a more false rep- it, it may, reflection of your values, I guess. It, it, it may be the case that like the same rules ought to shift according to domain. Um, but, but there is, but it's not arbitrary to know that like some of these basic rules are what allow for us to even, you know, have science. Right. And, and I, like, I am a firm believer that, that adhering to these basic rules, for instance, in, in science is, and building sort of even, you know, math is built on some of these things. And it's like, you might be right that, that at some point, maybe it's not a normative error to believe something different, right? So I, I think you're right. And you can abuse consistency by saying, like, you're not allowed to care more about your daughter than about a stranger's daughter. Like, that's inconsistent. Well, you no, know, it, I, this, it's there's, not. There's such right? an assumption it's, there. That... There's a huge assumption there. So we yeah. need to be guarded about when when we're actually saying inconsistency. And so, for instance, in our Chip Tyrone study, it could very well be that people actually think that, you know, as I would have many liberal audiences tell me, no, a black life really is worth more. All I could tell them is this that, like, really our... Black pro- Lives Matter, by the way. <laughs> Read one way, that's really sad. Um, but our participants themselves would when asked they rejected they they actually endorsed consistency they they said like no race should not matter at all in this decision but which is okay the funny thing about that is that was probably sort of what was unconsciously driving 
the kill the rich white guy effect in the first place. Yeah. Is that race should not matter, you know? Right, right. All right, let's take a quick break, and we'll be back to list our top two ways in which we've changed our mind. Or maybe one for you, I forget. Like, where are you? I'm, I'm a stubborn motherfucker. My number one is is one that I we've talked about a lot, so I won't dwell on it too much. It's my change from being a free will and more importantly, because that's a pseudo debate, moral responsibility denier. Um, I was a skeptic about those things. So I thought there was no such thing as free will. Therefore, there was no such thing as deserving blame or praise or punishment or reward that that whole idea was bankrupt. So I was in the camp of Galen Strawson and Dirk Paraboom and Bruce Waller and Sam Harris. And I, I think I've completed the, tra- the, the, the process of going over almost entirely to a kind of Strassonian compatibilist view. And it relates, I think, to a sort of broader big change in my philosophical perspective and especially my perspective on questions about justice. This, I think I used to have that somewhat rationalist view about justice that it has to be impartial, it has to be consistent, and it has to be impersonal. And now I see that, or I, I believe that justice is a lot more personal. That it can be racist. Gra- <laughs> because, you know. Why why be impartial when you can be racist? <laughs> Before you attack, yeah. let me just give a very the briefest of descriptions of it that our notions about justice and our certainly our notions about responsibility and desert are grounded in our emotions and in our practices concerning blame and praise and attitudes like resentment and gratitude and forgiveness and and that those attitudes and the whole framework as a whole while within the framework you know there's 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 room for a ton of variation and a ton of questioning and internal revision but and now i'm just quoting strassen as a whole it neither calls for nor permits external rational 
justification. And I believe that now as strongly as I believe almost anything in philosophy. And I, you know, this is probably a, a thing that I'm going to be writing about in the in the future. It'll definitely be a big part of the honor book. That I think that it's 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 not just misguided, but misguided in a fundamentally destructive way to regard justice and as, as something that's impersonal. And, and I think there's definitely an imperson- impartial element to justice, but it's overemphasized at the expense of recognizing certain just true facts about our practices. Um, when you say that it's a destructive view, I, I don't think that you're paying enough attention to the contextual features of what might make something destructive. <laughs> that's you know i never thought of that so yeah destructive by by destructive i mean at least to things like a criminal justice system that we have in america that you know destroys lives and um you know that 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 actually plays a part in it (laughs) look at episode 12 for a discussion of that (laughs) well it didn't we do a slightly better one yeah, we did. Uh, Don't look at episode 12 at all. And I think just philosophically destructive in that we're still talking about, you know, Rawls and uh, when we should. Yeah, be. this is it's it's more of a pragmatic view, I guess, about justice and less it's, of an idealized abstract view like you like. Well, it's funny because in our discussion with Sam Harris about free will, I, I feel like by the end we were both defending the practice of blame on very very similar grounds yeah um and where we dif- differed in our view was i thought that um internally within the practice of blame there there is a role for impartiality i um, i agree with that i totally agree with yeah. that we we probably differ on the the size of the role that we think it yeah. should play, but I think it should right. play a role and a not insignificant role. I just so I don't want. Yeah, I I, I, I fear arbitrary arbitrariness and systematic prejudice, right. and that's why I want. And I do too. I don't fear arbitrariness as much, but I do fear systematic prejudice, and it's that feeling of fearing systematic prejudice that sort of. I think it uh, opens the door, and rightly so, for letting impartiality play a role in justice. But right now, it, it plays an outsized role. It's all of justice. And, and I think that's just philosophically incoherent, but also just not how we really think. Like, I think deep down, people agree with my new view. Yeah, you know, well, in the same I, way I, that you, you think know. deep down, I'm not really a moral expressiveness i think deep oh, I down you, say, I you, you share my Jew. <laughs> and we might disagree about the details or the contours but but we agree on the on the basic point so. okay i'm gonna make my last one quick because i'm not convinced that i'm convinced okay um, that's good. but i will say i will say this i used to be a much firmer believer that there was something deeply special about the human brain that would allow for intelligence maybe even consciousness yeah um and i i think that really we just need to get the architecture right and we could probably create something just as magnificent with silicon and and wow so you're strong ai i think that i'm convinced that it's 
you know, maybe we're a hundred years away, but it's not in principle impossible. Like I, I used to think that in principle, what that principle was, I, I don't think I ever really knew. Um, but I think that the way, the ways in which we, I mean, we can remote control rats. I, I mean, roaches, you know, it's like, it's crazy. I think that, that it's just a matter of really understanding uh, reverse engineering the the brain i think it's just much more complex than anybody ever ever really realized um, and i for one welcome our new robot masters <laughs> <laughs> that was a, um, a a joke that somebody made on facebook and i, I don't want to that's actually an old an so old Samson. meme for, from the homer in space episode from the yeah <laughs> i also love the one where it's like don't blame me i voted for kodos yeah. um uh, so yeah, I don't think I have much more to say about that other than, than it's not that I used to think there was something magical about the human brain. I think I was much more convinced that, that, um, maybe it was something about the particular wet, wet, where the biological part that made something emerge. But I think that with a sufficiently complex, um, computer, we'll, we'll get there. I don't think we're anywhere close. Why like, we're really, really, really far. Um, it's the brain is the most complex thing. We're know, far we in human terms, but the com- we're far we're, in human terms. The like, computers themselves be... are very close. I, I don't know if I, I, I would maybe start uh, withdrawing. Well, I think computers are fa- far. Take the penalty for your Roth IRA and <laughs> spend it on a nice trip for yourself. You know. <laughs> just, just so that when the what I'm not convinced. Well, it's of, not going to help you that you have before. a really good, you know, IRA like waiting for you after the singularity. I, you know, I don't think that they'll be evil though, you know, because we'll just give them empathy. We just won't let Paul be in control of like what <laughs> programs they get. You know, just put in some fucking ethical subroutines. No, just don't, don't make you them think you theory. don't think we need. We don't need to give them empathy because they'll just naturally follow the categorical imperative. Maybe, maybe they'll realize that we have beliefs and desires and interests. And that, the that one thing if, they won't if, do is masturbate or allow they, us to masturbate. Because, we should definitely program in some weakness for them like that, though. You know, like I feel like we're human beings are crippled by this, our physical needs. And we should just really give them some physical need that or, you know, we can need like to use themselves them. as as mere means. <laughs> Um, but basically if we have no way of blackmailing artificial intelligence with you know some some evidence of perverse activity then we've lost so we need to give them give them a little bit of shame give them the tendency to do things that they would be embarrassed about and and then you know computer can't be president if we have pictures of it like plugging into 220 when it really is should be plugging into 110 Um, or like i could put my roomba like in bed with one of my friend's (laughs) little babies you know (laughs) and just show it to the roomba and was like yeah you were pretty fucked up but that's that's not okay. Uh, when you thought of that example, did you have a particular friend's baby in mind? <laughs> I'm going to say no. <laughs> but, you know, look, it's not like anything's going to happen and it will save the human race. It'll just so. be cleaner. It'll just be cleaner. <laughs> cleaner <laughs> baby. Into All right. Baby. Finally, a little repugnant uh, material.
Everybody can have a brain. You're a very bad man. I'm a very good man. Just a very bad wizard.